This podcast was recorded on Wednesday, April 18th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, I'm astonished by the degree of mass hysteria that a single press release from a Houston-based oil pipeline company can engender in this country. It may not be a constitutional crisis, but it's certainly a deep family feud that threatens a multi-billion dollar pipeline project, election promises, climate change plans, and of course, political fortunes across this country. The problem is uncertainty, and uncertainty leads to delays, and delays lead to more investment from Kinder Morgan, and they're worried about that. I'm Althea Raj, and this is Follow Up, a HuffPost Canada politics podcast. On this show, we'll touch on the Kinder Morgan mess and close a loop on the Daniel Jean and Jaspal Atwal affair. Remember them from that disastrous trip to India? Well, the National Security Advisor finally broke his silence, shedding some light on what he told reporters and why. What I said is that we had concerns that this seems to be coordinated misinformation by actors, possibly to exacerbate the FOPA, the fact and invitation that should have been made had been made, in order to reinforce the notion that Canada is complacent on the risk of extremism, a perception that has been brought at times by Indian intelligence services and one that we do not share. And as we head to Halifax for the Federal Liberal Convention, we'll give you a taste of what's to expect. Stick around. Well, the week started off with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau meeting with BC Premier John Horgan and Alberta Premier Rachel Notley. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be sitting down with, uh, with the Premiers this morning. We have uh, important discussions ahead, and I'm looking forward to them. Trudeau was responding to an ultimatum issued by Kinder Morgan last week, with the BC NDP government doing everything it can to block the pipeline's construction. The company said the Trans Mountain expansion might be dead if it doesn't get more certainty by May 31st. I have instructed the Minister of Finance to initiate formal financial discussions with Kinder Morgan, the result of which will be to remove the uncertainty overhanging the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion project. Whatever Trudeau said to the premiers, though, wasn't enough to cool things down. The next day, Alberta introduced legislation to throttle gas exports to BC, raising prices there. This legislation will be there if Alberta needs it. Saskatchewan's premier, Scott Moe, said he would do the same in his province, an act of solidarity with Albertans. When Alberta moves on their, on their legislation to turn the taps off, if you will, the next logical place to look for that energy product is, is Saskatchewan, and we won't be there to provide it. Then BC's government said it would make good on a pledge to raise the issue in court by the end of the month. Well, the jurisdiction isn't clear. That's federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh saying Ottawa should punt the whole thing off to the Supreme Court. These are all questions that are going to be settled in court. This is exactly why we have a court system. The federal liberals, however, dismissed the idea. And in the midst of all this, Green Party leader Elizabeth May argues Ottawa is just going to end up throwing taxpayers' money into a project that Kinder Morgan may not even want to build. So quote-unquote, de-risking the Kinder Morgan pipeline to Canadian taxpayers? Look out! 
What we're hearing is that a private sector project is likely so uncommercial that Kinder Morgan would like the government of Canada to bail them out because they haven't got long-term contracts, they haven't got markets, they haven't got investors. And the people of Canada should ensure that there's a full review of the viability commercially of this project. I stand before you as someone completely persuaded by the evidence that they don't know how to clean up Dilbert, that there's a threat to our waterways, a threat to our salmon, a threat to our coasts, a violation of First Nations rights, but I also don't see the business case. Midweek, Kinder Morgan issued a new warning. They did strongly hint in this call that government money may be the only way forward as three levels of government continue this public fight over this project. Uh, It's become clear this particular investment may be untenable for a private party to undertake. The events of the last 10 days have uh, confirmed those views. And on Thursday, Trudeau said the Kinder Morgan statement changed nothing. Uh, As I said, I have asked the uh, finance minister to engage in discussions, uh, uh, financial discussions with Kinder Morgan, uh, and that's exactly what's going on. We will uh, ensure that this pipeline gets built in a way uh, that uh, upholds and protects the interests of Canadians, Uh, but this pipeline will get built. a bureaucrat like Daniel Jean, who's been around a long time, think that it was his obligation to go forth and correct misinformation and get a list of reporters from the Prime Minister to call up and doing this apparently all on his own. Why would he do it? It's just not done. Mr. Jean uh, has been an extraordinary public servant, not only in our government, not only in Mr. Harper's government, but over successive governments, somebody who has done a remarkable job serving Canadians. I have a hard time believing that he was just doing it on his own, but at the end of the day, this is why I feel this situation is unfortunate, because he can only say so much, and I think it's, uh, as, a, as a member of Parliament, I demand more accountability of the Prime Minister and of the different ministers responsible for this whole debacle, I suppose we can call it. The Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, Daniel Jean, testified before the Commons Public Safety and National Security Committee Monday. Jean's the man who suggested to reporters that rogue elements in India may have had a hand in convicted attempted murderer Jaspal Atwal's presence at Prime Minister Trudeau's social events. Jean suggested this was an attempt to embarrass the Canadian government and make it seem sympathetic to Sikh separatism. A few weeks ago, when this controversy bubbled up into an overnight filibuster, iPolitics writer Katie O'Malley joined me to unpack the whole thing. She's back. Katie, welcome. Thanks for having me. Does Daniel Jean's testimony put this issue to bed? Well, you know, maybe I am super duper naive on this front, but I got to tell you, I was not left with that many questions when he finished talking. I felt like... You can agree or disagree or scratch your head in befuddlement as to why he would have felt the need to get involved, but I do think it was his decision. Like, Unless he is an Oscar-caliber actor, I don't think he was faking that. I think he honestly thought, hey, there's misinformation out there. I think I'll, a shadowy, you know, spy guy, I think I'll hold a bunch of background briefings with journalists because that'll kill the story. So I think think Daniel Jean has probably learned a valuable lesson about media relations, but in general, I found it, yeah, I found him fairly convincing and 
on the whole issue of the, you know, the rogue agents and this and that, if you started to sort of parse the actual words that he said, it was easy to see. I think it was a genuine misunderstanding. Like, I actually think he was saying, hey, it could have been people outside the government, could have been people inside the government, who knows who it was, but it was definitely orchestrated. And somehow in the game of Broken Telephone, that became elements within the Indian government. Okay, so I should stay here for the readers yeah. that, or the listeners. Yes. <laughs> occupational hazard that um, neither you nor I have had one of these no. uh, background briefings no. with Mr. Jean. My takeaway from the committee hearing was that he changed his story. All of a sudden, it became a story about how he needed to safeguard the reputation of the RCMP and CSIS and the Kane High Commission who, like, were, it was somehow being suggested that they had approved Jaspal mm. Atwal's presence at these events. I then told media representative that inaccurate information around the invitation of Mr. Atwal was being circulated. I referred them to the title of an Indian Express story published on February 22nd, which suggested that a Canadian citizen entered India after a 38-year ban as part of the Prime Minister's delegation. I indicated that this was misleading as the individual was not on the official delegation for the visit. I noted that while the government of Canada is glad when a Canadian citizen can resolve travel restrictions, the government had not intervened with the Indian government to remove any member of the official delegation from an interdiction to travel to India. I said that questions related to interdiction to travel to India should be directed to the government of India. With regards to Mr. Atwal, I said that we understood that after having difficulties traveling to India for several years, he was removed by the Indian government from the so-called blacklist in 2017 and allowed to travel there last summer as someone who is presumably no longer considered as a threat and no longer espouses the cause of an independent Khalistan. Mr. Atwal now meets with Indian diplomats in Canada, Indian officials, which is normal process for people who go through the blacklist uh, uh, process. To put the least sinister or least nefarious kind of spin on that, I can see how at the time, I mean, as he at one point even said, it's like they were kind of dealing with a crisis, you know, ongoing while the prime minister was in a plane and the hours were all different. And this, like it was, it was not a time for calm reflection. I can imagine that after the fact, he might have thought back and thought, well, jeepers, isn't it good that I jumped in there to defend these organizations? I mean, I don't think he was, I don't think he was lying. I really don't. I do think that it's possible that he honestly just saw misinformation and thought, ooh, I better get out there and correct it. But he did mention the fact that basically the prime minister's office gave him a list of reporters to call. Which I, to me, that again, and I heard that and sort of, you know, perked up, but it sounds more like they were looking at the reporters who were covering the story and were saying, okay, you got to call this one, you got to call this one, you got to call this one. Because I don't think anyone got the magic briefing who hadn't been, who wasn't either on the trip or was covering the story. So, I mean, in that sense, it, it, it would, it would to me, raise more red flags if me, who was not actually ready with the Indian trip, I got the briefing. I'd be like, why are they picking me to have this background briefing? As it is, it seemed fairly logical who they, they were picking. But yeah, I mean, again, I can put part of that down to naivete and dealing with kind of a, you know, a communications crisis in on the different sides of the of the planet in the sense of, you know, the time zones and the this and the that. At the same time, with a, a conversation can be had as to whether or not it's even the National Security Advisor's responsibility to deal with a media crisis. Isn't that why the Prime Minister and PCO have entire wings of, you know, officials designed to do this? He's staff. supposed to be off, you know, keeping the world safe for Canada or something. So do we make uh, something out of the extent of political interference in this case? I honestly don't see it as political interference. I got to say, I, I am I am not sold on that. I think it was a, 
I think it was a, you know, in hindsight, a well-intended, terrible idea for him to get as involved as he did. I don't think he was pushed out there. I think he genuinely wanted to do it. Perhaps more political interference would have been a good idea if someone had said like, oh, maybe not, Daniel. Maybe you shouldn't be the one to go out there and do those interviews. So, I mean, PMO clearly didn't see this as you know, likely to become a problem. But I do think it was his idea. I did get the sense that it was his idea. It has been sort of horrifically mishandled all around. But I'll say this. I think letting Daniel Jean, having him testify was a really good idea. And had they done this a month and a half ago, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation today. Because I I do think that he was able to, for the most part, clear up the... um, The air. Clear the air, clear up the the seeming inconsistencies. And the, the, the sort of the timeline he provided checked out like it actually it it made coherent sense it was a sequence of events that you could read and say oh okay yeah okay now I actually do see how that happened so I can yeah again maybe I am the most naive person in the world but I I bought it um let's talk about consistency Mm -hmm. because he seemed to take a great deal of um affront over the word conspiracy Mm -hmm. um I'm gonna run this clip so I never raise a conspiracy theory, as I said before. What I said is that there was coordinated efforts to try to misinform, and I said that these were either private people, it was definitely not the government of India, and if it was people from India, they were acting in a rogue way. So basically he says that uh, he never uttered the word mm-hmm. conspiracy, uh, and that he never suggested that the government of India was behind this. But then he does go on to say that if there were actors, they were acting in a rogue way. And so when you parse what the reporters actually wrote, it's like a conspiracy without saying the word conspiracy, although it's not directly linked to the government of India. What happened was we ended up, and I say we as in all of us in the media, we ended up looking because what he seemed to be saying and his quotes at the time, you know, seemed to both his appearance at committee and his quotes at the time, he was saying, yes, he absolutely clearly thinks there was a conspiracy. He doesn't know if it was, he doesn't think it was the official Indian government, but it could be people within the Indian government. It could be people outside the Indian government. It could be people back in Canada. He clearly, like his list of suspects is long. One of them is, one of that groups is people who may work for the Indian government, but weren't acting in an official capacity, but that didn't seem to be the only possibility because that was the juiciest story. That's what we seized on was that he didn't write off the possibility. And somehow then it got conflated into maybe it was the actual Indian government. So that's what I mean by the broken telephone. Maybe that was conflated by the fact that the conservatives were suggesting that. Yeah, well, and the prime minister seemed to confirm it. So, you know, you, you make a good point. It wasn't like there was a lot of clarity going on here. Really, what we know here is the government is trying to cover up the fact that they sent someone out to spin that they had a ridiculous conspiracy theory that somehow the Indian government was to blame for the Prime Minister's disastrous appearance. So, Mr. Speaker, why are the Liberals trying to cover this up? Why don't they just come clean? The former High Commissioner from India likened the allegations of the Prime Minister of of a sabotage conspiracy to something out of Harry Potter, calling it pure (laughs) fiction. And a foreign affairs expert on CBC said the Sega is a whodunit, Harry Potter, Alice in Wonderland scheme. Right. Mr. Speaker, the speculation about some so-called conspiracy theory largely came from the opposition. Why didn't they? Why didn't the MPs ask about this? This seems like the stuff that was actually left off the table. They didn't seem to want to ask any questions about some of the juicier details that he had leaked mm-hmm. to reporters, quote unquote, here that he didn't repeat uh, at the Commons mm-hmm. Committee. 
they didn't push on like who was behind it or what the motivation of these people might be? Well, I think, and and this is obviously particularly for the from the opposition perspective, because they were the ones who demanded the meeting. They were the ones who, generally speaking, in a situation like this, would be going on the, the offensive in terms of the interrogation. I think they made a very wise deduction, which was that Daniel Jean comes across as a pretty credible guy. If you put up a pitbull MP to try to, if you don't try to do what Pat Martin did to Karl-Heinz Schreiber to this dude, it goes over very badly for the MP. And I think that that's the calculation they made. It was that if they still had questions, they were going to try to refocus again onto the prime minister, yep. that turning this into a story about Daniel Jean was not going to serve their purposes because he comes across pretty well. But what about turning this questioning mm. into actually trying to find out answers? Like, Oh, what it's was so the cute nature Jasper Atwal's relationship with the Vancouver consulate, yeah. which he suggested to some reporters, or the well, his I, ties to Indian intelligence that he seemed I, to suggest think, to other reporters? I thought that that was in the in his opening statement. And again, maybe I maybe I misinterpreted. He it. talks so quickly. I know he really did. But I thought what he was saying was. Jasper Atwell did have all of these meetings with all of these Indian officials because he was trying to get off the blacklist, the the travel ban, and that's why he and that there's a record of this that and that's kind of why he had those contacts. He did kind of, he he asserted he can he he repeated the assertion mm-hmm. that Atwell had all these contacts with people in the Indian government. He didn't put a spin on it that would suggest that there was some sort of link there. Instead, it sounded like it was kind of by happenstance. But again, if we were members of the Privy Council, Althea, we could be getting the classified <laughs> briefing right now and we might have more answers. When I asked him, you know, is this the full story? Do you think the public hearing you on Monday testify has a good and complete mm-hmm. picture of what happened? He did not answer the question. Well, I mean, I guess we'll, I, I guess we'll see. I, as I think we've discussed before, um, I remain skeptical that many members of the public are still following every twist and turn of this particular subplot in the Indian story, because I think it just got so weird and meta that everyone else tuned out. So I, I think that the question is, did it satisfy parliamentarians, you know, questions? And from a purely strategic point of view, is there anything left for the conservatives to keep going on about? Yeah, to mine. Doesn't look like it. Yeah, we were back to the Aga Khan yesterday, which kind of suggests the answer is no. Thank you, Kitty. Thanks for having me. Kitty O'Malley is a writer with iPolitics. Close to 3,000 delegates are expected to descend on Halifax as the Liberals host their biannual convention. On Friday, Trudeau's Principal Secretary, Gerald Butts, will sit down with U.S. President Barack Obama's Chief Strategist, David Axelrod. And the Prime Minister is scheduled to speak on Saturday. In the middle of all this, there will be policy discussions as Liberals try to convince their party leadership to embrace bold new ideas like legalizing prostitution and decriminalizing illicit drugs. I'm Azam Ishmael. I'm the National Director of the Liberal Party of Canada. So you've gone through an interesting resolution process, I think, it's kind of the first time uh, it's 
as open, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Walk us through that. The policy process used to be a lot murkier, uh, as you probably know, um, where you'd have small groups of people meet and they would blend resolutions and then, you know, who knows what actually made it to the convention floor. So we've decided much in the spirit of our movement, we'd go with a open and transparent policy process. So, you know, every PTB and commission and caucus were allowed to put forward their resolutions. After that, they were whittled down to six. After that, they were then put forward, uh, they were then put forward to a vote of the entire party. So that vote for the entire party was um, 39 resolutions, now down to the 30. We had 6,000 people vote on our par party policy process, um, which is to us really, you know, like I, ca I can't think of any other convention that that's happened where, you know, 6,000 people got a say in which policies actually made it to the floor. Uh, and then we're going to go to the convention where it's going to be um, even thoroughly more democratic, where it's going to be, uh, you know, the policy process plenaries are going to allow people to speak to the 30 resolutions that currently exist. And then they'll be whittled down to 20. Uh, so on Friday, look for some online voting of all those people. Uh, then on Saturday morning, it goes to the policy plenary where they get an up or down vote if, if the party should... Um, if the party should endorse that policy resolution. And then after that, they'll get to vote through the through an old school paper ballot for their top two to give an indication of which ones the party supports the most. There's no room for emergency resolutions. Yeah, I don't don't see why we would need an emergency resolution. Policy process has been open up since, um, I can't remember the exact date, but it's been open up for the last few months and we've been working away and people have had lots of opportunities to bring forward uh, debate and conversation. And I think as issues come up, the party can get together and have that conversation. There is a national policy committee, uh, which can also have like further debate on issues and, you know, bring stuff to attend to our attention if they need. But usually it's like the time for members to say, oh, we want to talk about Kinder Morgan, or we want to talk about the attacks in Syria. I think if we would have seen some uh, push, and I haven't seen any, I haven't witnessed it. I think what it came up in our open policy boards, um, you know, emails, writing into the party. And I, I think people generally are pretty satisfied with the 30 resolutions going to the, going to the convention. You know, they range everything from Pharmacare to, uh, you know, like just a really a guaranteed wide. income supplement, <laughs> building a bridge from Newfoundland to Labrador. Yeah, lots, lots of really interesting policy ideas. So sometimes uh, members express or supporters express a disconnect between participating in the policy process and then, and this is true of all political parties, and then seeing the election platform not necessarily mirror what uh, supporters, members uh, have endorsed at conventions. Should the political leadership of the party be tied to the policy resolutions endorsed by the members? Well, I, th I think to your own point around emergency resolutions is there's a bit of that tied into it, right? Like the platform needs to address the issues at hand. The conventions only come up every two years, right? So you do have to balance kind of the current needs and the current issues coming forward, like uh, that appear at any given time versus, um, you know, what you can reasonably deb debate over a two-year process. Thank you. No problem. Azam Ismail is the National Director of the Liberal Party of Canada. None of the resolutions that pass at this weekend's convention are binding, but they will be ranked, giving the leadership some direction about the priorities of the party's grassroots.
Well, that's our mini show this week. Next time you'll see us in your feed, we'll have a podcast from the Liberal Convention. Woot! This episode comes to you thanks to help from producer Zian Lam and technical producer Stephanie Warner. Andre Lau is our executive producer. I'm Althea Raj. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>